JAXA International Podcast. Hello, my friends. My name is Toshihisa Nikaido, host of the JAXA International Podcast. Welcome to the first episode. Just a brief history before we begin. JAXA, or the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, was formed when three space agencies, the oldest of which was founded in 1955, merged in 2003 to become one of the world's leading space science agencies. Despite some of the incredible feats of JAXA, such as bringing back the largest sample in history from any object in space excluding the moon, our international presence is still, I'd say relatively small when compared to other space organizations. And so with this podcast, among a few other things, I'm hoping to help highlight the amazing achievements of JAXA and give some insight as to what we hope to accomplish moving forward through long form interviews with some of our English speaking scientists and other essential staff. Today's episode will feature former NASA planetary space scientist, world traveler, science educator, and new father, James O'Donohue. You can find him on social media jfizz85 on YouTube, where he has a lot of excellent uh, educational animations, or at physicsj on Twitter. So that's jphys85 on YouTube, or at physicsj on Twitter. In this episode, we get into um, many things, including the upper atmosphere of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn, leaving the Shire to travel the world, on being a new father in Japan, the second greatest light show in the solar system, and so much more. Enjoy. We're here today with JAXA's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science, the Department of Solar System Sciences, James O'Donohue. James, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you start by just telling us what you do here at JAXA specifically? I use uh, really big telescopes to look at Jupiter and Saturn. I look at their upper atmospheres and look at things like their aurora, which is like the northern lights equivalent on Earth. In particular, we have a recent result out on Jupiter coming out in about a month uh, where we found out that the aurora was actually heating the rest of the planet in the upper atmosphere. That's interesting. How exactly do you, are you able to study the upper atmosphere of, of Jupiter? I, I don't think, uh, you know, you can just go down to the store and buy a telescope and look at Jupiter and, and be able to see everything that you'll need. Can you, can you tell us the, the process for this? Yeah, so first uh, we have to apply for some telescope time uh, on the big telescopes. Uh, once we've gotten that, we go up to uh, the mountain. Usually the telescopes are on a mountain. Yeah, the, so the telescope we used for our work was a 10-meter telescope called Keck. And uh, we pointed that at Jupiter, and we took data all night. And then we looked at that data for, for a very long time. This took a, a few years, this study, actually. Um, and we built this giant map of uh, Jupiter's temperatures across the planet. And uh, the north and the south parts of Jupiter are very hot because that's where the aurora are. Um, similar to Earth, we, the Earth has auroras, which are called the Northern Lights, if they're in the north, uh, or the Aurora Borealis, uh, or in the south, they're called Aurora Australis. And uh, they're produced by 
charged particles from space flying into the planet and uh, energizing the atoms and causing them to glow. And so that's what we're looking at. But at Jupiter, so Jupiter has very powerful aurora. In fact, the most powerful in the solar system. You could say after the sun, it was uh, the most uh, interesting or powerful light show in the solar system. Um, but what we found in our work was that uh, along with the uh, the emissions, the the brightness that we see of the aurora, there's also a lot of heating. Now we knew we knew there was a lot of heating where the aurora were. Um, which raises the planet's temperature to several hundred Celsius. And um, what, what has been known for decades is that the rest of the planet, where the aurora do not occur, the rest of the planet uh, is actually uh, several hundred degrees as well. Um, and that's been very confusing because there's no aurora there. So what is heating it? Um, if you look at sunlight hitting the planet, it should be only uh, about let's see, about minus 150 Celsius or so in the upper atmosphere. But instead, we measure it at uh, a few hundred Celsius, which is uh, a problem. In, uh, in It's a problem. It highlights that we don't understand what's going on on other planets. And so after about almost 50 years of this mystery, I think we finally uh, solved it. And it turns out that all of the heating that takes place in the aurora actually is able to spread around to the rest of the planet as well. So now we know that the aurora of planets actually heats the entire planet, at least of Jupiter. And there's evidence for this at Saturn as well. Um, and so that's kind of in a nutshell what, uh, what this project has been about. Uh, in terms of using the Keck telescope, uh, yeah, we need a really big telescope because the bigger the mirror of the telescope, the more collecting power we have. And with all of that collecting power, things look brighter. And so uh, that, that was really necessary. We couldn't have used a small telescope for this because we would not have been able to collect enough, bright, uh, enough light from the planet. We needed enough light that we could uh, figure out what the temperature of uh, which bit of the planet we're looking at is. Um, that, that is very tricky work, um, which is why it's only been uh, recently completed now for, um, for areas away from the aurora of Jupiter. So the aurora is very bright because it's very hot, uh, but the rest of the planet is more difficult to see. So that's why uh, we use a really big telescope. I, I guess my uh, first question in regards to that is, you mentioned that the telescopes are usually on the top of mountains. Is this just to avoid uh, clouds and uh, weather that would make it more difficult to, to view the planets? Or is there yeah. any other reason for this? Yeah, so basically um, you want to get away from Earth's atmosphere as much as possible. Firstly, if you're looking in visible light, you want to... You don't want any clouds, so you want to get away from clouds. That's a big, a big thing. But um, we use infrared in our work, and infrared is particularly sensitive to the atmosphere because uh, our atmosphere kind of glows in the infrared uh, and also absorbs things that are infrared, depending where you're looking. Um, so when we're looking at the infrared emissions coming from Jupiter, for example, they have to pass through the atmosphere before reaching the telescope. And along the way, things like water and everything will absorb that light. Um, but it'll also, also be bright in other wavelengths as well. Uh, so it's very difficult 
thing to deal with, actually. So what, what we do is we look at, uh, for example, Jupiter, and then we look at a blank part of the sky. And then afterwards, we subtract the sky from Jupiter. Uh, it really is like that, actually. Um, and we want to minimize how much we have to subtract. Uh, so we build the telescopes on the top of mountains to avoid a lot of the atmosphere and the clouds. But uh, it's kind of a combination of those two things. The air is drier up there. There's less water vapor in it. So that's also very useful. But yeah, essentially, we'd, we would ideally have uh, everything in space, except that it is extraordinarily expensive to put things up there. Uh, to have something in space would mean to avoid nearly all of the atmosphere. Um, but the trouble is it, it costs a lot of uh, money and time and expertise to uh, to build them up there, which is why you only see that there's just a few telescopes up there, actually. What exactly do you mean by uh, subtracting the sky from Jupiter? Is this uh, subtracting the brightness or or, or changing the image uh, that you get? Or Yeah, you... so, so if you just look at Jupiter, uh, if you just had a an image of Jupiter in infrared, um, it would look very uh, noisy and you'd, you'd probably barely be able to see Jupiter itself, um, at least in our images. And um, so a lot of that signal that you're looking at is actually the glow from our own atmosphere. And so what you do is you take a, an image of Jupiter, which then contains Jupiter plus sky and then you take an image of just the sky separately. So you actually move the telescope a little bit to the side, take an image of the nothingness, but it isn't really nothing. It's some, some of our own sky. Uh, and then you mathematically, you just subtract the, the, uh, the sky signal from the Jupiter plus sky, giving you just Jupiter. And that, that little operation there is uh, a way of basically it's the most critical of all of our operations we do, actually, the, the A minus B, we call it subtraction, or the uh, object minus sky subtraction. All right, I want to uh, go back to the, the aurora for a moment here, and I guess just check. You said that uh, charged particles is, is what actually creates the aurora, but would, are these uh, particles from the sun, or are they uh, all different kinds of particles? What uh, particles in particular would, would make the aurora? And if it's different on Earth and Jupiter, can you, can you dive into that as well? Yeah, so uh, most of the particles that are hitting the Earth's atmosphere to create the Earth's aurora are from the solar wind. And uh, that process is fairly complicated, but basically uh, our magnetic field, our magnetosphere, uh, so the Earth's magnetic field actually acts as a giant obstacle uh, to the flow of the solar wind, which is coming past Earth. Um, so if you were to look, if you could actually see the Earth's magnetosphere, you'd see a giant kind of teardrop shape uh, with a tail pointing away from the sun. Uh, so we're kind of uh, being shielded from this flow, except um, sometimes or all the time, there are things called magnetic reconnections. Uh, it's a very complicated uh, hardly understood topic, actually, uh, at its heart. But basically, uh, charged particles from the solar wind can funnel their way into the top and the bottom part of Earth, where the uh, magnetic field lines are kind of uh, open in the middle uh, of the aurora as well. So uh, yeah, it gets a little tricky because I'm trying to dance around something complex. But basically, uh, aurora 
charged particles are funneling into this ring in the north and the south of of, uh, of Earth. On uh, Jupiter, the aurora is actually heating the entire planet. I guess this is uh, kind of a revelation in the in the uh, in the entire field. Is, is this happening on Earth at all as well, uh, <laughs> or, or a, do we not know this yet? Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, I don't think it's happening in the in a similar way. It would be very difficult to check. I think, as as far as as far as I know, uh, it doesn't happen or. It, it, it's not observed to happen, I think, but I could be wrong. The thing is with Earth's upper atmosphere, though, the main source of heating, presumably mainly away from the aurora again, is, is actually sunlight, uh, where you can have thousands of uh, degrees C is okay in the Earth's upper atmosphere because the sun is quite bright uh, over here compared to Jupiter. Now, Jupiter receives about 3% or 4% the amount of sunlight as Earth, so 4% the amount of heating yet its upper atmosphere is not that dissimilar from Earth's, which that was the first alarm bell, really. The fact that the temperatures are kind of similar for Earth and Jupiter, despite the fact that Jupiter is only receiving about 4% the amount of heating. What you've recently discovered about the, the how the aurora is uh, heating Jupiter, this is, is going to be a paper published in Nature? Then, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it'll be uh, hopefully... Next month, uh, maybe towards the end of next month, it'll be in Nature. It's been uh, a long journey for this paper uh, because just, just for anybody listening right now, we're we're recording near the beginning of July 2021. So if you're listening to this in August or beyond, uh, hopefully that paper will be out and you'll be able to see it in Nature. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We have a uh, cool animation and some cool pictures to show as well that will. Uh, I hope practically explain what's going on in about five seconds uh, or so, but I'll explain it here in words. It basically what's going on is uh, the field had suspected that there was uh, heat moving away from the aurora of Jupiter around the rest of the planet, but without any actual evidence of that, it was very difficult to say whether or not that is happening. So other theories had been proposed for heating the upper atmospheres, uh, like uh, heating from below, gravity, uh, gravity waves, uh, which are basically big density waves, which is not basic, again, but I'm trying to reduce it. But uh, yeah, so uh, basically just waves, we'll say waves. Um, also acoustic waves, which is sound waves. So basically lots and lots of waves. And to put it simply, these waves are coming from below in the turbulent atmosphere, traveling up, and eventually they have to go somewhere. They can't just keep going throughout space forever. Um, so they have to break. And what we think is happening is these waves are breaking in the upper atmosphere and uh, basically moving the material, physically moving the material in a way that uh, actually heats up the upper atmosphere. So I mean, this was uh, one of the theories proposed to heat the planet and it, it will it will do it but it's just a case of um is it enough to explain the observed temperatures or not um so that's another theory uh models of jupiter's upper atmosphere have tried to move the heat in the aurora away from the aurora to the equator but most of the recent models at least since about 2005 have not been able to do this successfully so we weren't clear on how 
that's even possible. Um, the the models suggest that basically winds, uh, actual winds, are keeping the heat confined to the poles of Jupiter. Um, and so what we've shown is that actually, uh, while those winds might be in operation, they're not strong enough to keep that heat confined. It wants to be free, so it's uh, it's actually propagating around the planet. So um, basically, it's winds that are carrying uh, this heat away um, from the aurora to the rest of the planet. But yeah, so while we thought that it could happen, we didn't know that it actually did. Uh, so now that we we know fairly definitively from two different days of data, actually uh, taken in two different years, yeah, that's a, that's a good a good result. I think it'll be very useful for the field because now now models can uh, can say well. Uh, not that we don't have to look for these gravity waves or acoustic waves, but um, certainly the, the the way to go is to look for um, how fast you need these winds to be away from the aurora to uh, to counteract this force keeping them in there. Uh, and so there'll be some more back and forth. This is not a totally fi finished topic. There'll be uh, more back and forth uh, between observers and modelers. Uh, so we want to observe how fast these winds are going um, and compare it to how realistic that is uh, based on models. Cause you know, they can't be, can't be too fast for the whole system to uh, break, but um, they have to be a certain speed. I just want to jump back to the fact that you just had a, a paper accepted in nature for a moment here. And for people who may not be uh, very familiar with the academic fields, uh, nature is, is one of the, I guess, most respected or, or most, most well-known academic journals in existence right now. And getting a, uh, a research paper in there is quite an accomplishment. So <laughs> congratulations, first of all, I want to say. And because um, uh, our audience might be a, a wide group of people, it could be, you know, third graders or, or uh, well-seasoned scientists. Uh, I just want to make sure that we define um, a lot of the terminology that we're using and something that maybe a lot of people already know, or have at least heard before, uh, papers is a term that, uh, that comes up often. And, you know, what exactly is, is a paper? I, I think a lot of people outside of the scientific field don't really know very well what this is. Can you just give us a brief explanation of what a research paper is exactly? Yeah, uh, thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah, this is a, it's a really good point because uh, we always say, oh, got a paper accepted and and do we really know what it means do, do people really know what it means and at, at what level is that even taught to people i'm not sure i i don't even know when i was when i knew what a paper was but um generally uh, a science paper is uh, a new fact it's kind of like a, a new nugget of information um about the state of the art of some field so uh it could be an observation. It could be a new theory. It could be a new model. Uh, a model is kind of like a theory in a way. It is a article. It's a, it's a report basically that you write um, and you send that report to a journal and a journal is basically just uh, some, some company um, that uh, receive your science output. And then they, they check if it's worth sending out to other scientists. Uh, you know, they, they send it to uh, a couple of, or one or two or three referees they're called or reviewers and um those those are just other scientists in your field 
who would understand the work and be able to evaluate it. Uh, that process is called peer review because uh, other scientists are your peers. And basically they, they give you, they don't give you a score so much, but they, they say whether or not it needs any major corrections or minor corrections or whether it should be rejected outright or the one that rarely comes up. Uh, it should be accepted without any corrections at all. Um, it's always the dream to receive something like that. Um, never happened for me or anyone I know since uh, forever, but uh, maybe one day. Yeah, so basically a paper is, uh, is a report that is reviewed by other scientists and then the journal will uh, publish that at some point. Uh, usually takes a very long time after submission. Uh, I, would say, I would say several months after you've sent it in, it will be out for other scientists to see. And the, the time when most people have heard in the public, uh, heard of a paper is because uh, unless they already know a scientist in, in that particular field, they would have heard from it uh, by some university or from an agency like NASA or JAXA or from uh, a news article. And if, if there's a, a news article published about some scientific discovery, uh, you'll always see there's some link or you should see there's some link to the actual paper itself. Um, and so you can follow that right down to the paper. Um, so yeah, new, news uh, science writers tend to, to look around for in interesting science that they think the public will like. And so that's how that happens. But I think a lot of science uh, people don't hear about. But yeah, that's, that's the, the long answer to the question, I suppose. <laughs> it can take, uh, I, I guess, months for a paper to actually be accepted and and published and actually get out or is there any concern of let's say by the time it's actually out and available to to other scientists or to the public that uh, the information will become uh, maybe irrelevant or or old or or any problems in that area is, is this ever a concern um i think because everybody is also dealing with the same time lag that uh yeah any any fresh result you hear from science tends to be already several months old, technically speaking. So typically, let's say I go observing uh, on the 1st of January, 2021. Uh, so I, I use a telescope, uh, I get back home, uh, look at the data, I analyze it, it could take months, uh, or even several months, depending on, on what the, the purpose of the analysis is. Um, and then once you have some results, uh, you then write that up and that could take a, a month or so. Uh, you have to send it around to all of your colleagues too, to, so they can check it. And uh, maybe you're using one of your colleagues' models in combination with your data. So that, that can take a long time. And so you might ultimately submit it halfway through the year. And then if you're lucky, by the end of the year, it could be out. So it can, it can be a very long time actually, uh, but everybody is kind of dealing with the same thing. I would say that in our field, there are so few people looking at so much that there isn't really any direct worry, at least not for our, for us ground-based observers, uh, that, that anyone is going to come out with something that would... Uh, Beat you, you know, to the punch on, on <laughs> right. that kind of information. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was trying to think of one example. Um, when the Cassini spacecraft was out there around Saturn... Um, we also used to observe it, the planet, from here on Earth. And even with the two, um, the two operating at the same time, the, the ground-based people here on Earth looking at Saturn 
and the spacecraft team looking at Saturn. Uh, even with the two together, uh, it, there was it wasn't really so much a competition because we had a, a different perspectives and we generally would combine our data together to make an even stronger result in many cases. So there was a lot of support in that way. Um, I would say that there probably are fields of science out there where people, there's so many people working on a topic that you know, maybe there's a lot more competition to get that out. Uh, maybe, maybe there's an example in astronomy where some star explodes somewhere uh, into a supernova and it's, it's visible in the sky and maybe a few different competing teams want to have a look at it. And then, then in that case, there probably would be a rush. Yeah. So maybe, maybe in these, in these times where there is uh, some event happening, there is, there's probably a rush like that. The Cassini spacecraft uh, that you mentioned, this is, has been in space for, for what, about two decades now? Oh, and it's it's gone now. Oh, it's uh, gone. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't 20, even know this. Okay. <laughs> yeah, in 2017, it it made its uh, final plunge. I think in September, uh, into the planet. Um, yeah, it, it got there in 2004. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a while over there. Um, yeah, it, that's uh, that's it now at Saturn. There is no other spacecraft there. Um, Cassini was a real workhorse, actually. It's uh, probably one of the greatest probes there ever was. And it was, uh, it was around Saturn for a good 13 years or so. And uh, yeah, it was a real tank. And it, it, even when it got there, it dropped off a probe. <clears throat> uh, it dropped off a probe called Huygens uh, on Titan as well. And it, it did all of this successfully. Uh, yeah, so it was a fun mission. And, and towards the end, actually, a lot of our observations... Uh, a lot of our telescope proposals we had put in saying, we want to support this mission. Uh, you know, it's very rare we'll have a mission like this again. And, and true enough, there, is, there are no planned missions to Saturn right now. Um, even if you were to plan one right now and then build it and then send it, we're looking at probably 15 plus years to get there. So that's uh, it's kind of sad. I always feel like every planet should have something there at all times, you know. <laughs> or more than one thing but uh yeah in terms of the outer solar system beyond jupiter there are there are no probes around any other planet uh so jupiter has got one probe juno um that arrived in uh 2016 i think um yeah that's still going uh, i'm not sure for how much longer a few more years or something you were also involved with looking at and, and using data from the uh, cassini spacecraft uh, actually, yeah. So I didn't uh, look directly with uh, at the Cassini data myself, but um, some of my uh, colleagues did, um, uh, namely my office mates, uh, while I was doing my PhD. Um, and so, yeah, they did some great work uh, looking at at Saturn with uh, with Cassini spacecraft plus ground based support. Um, yeah, it, together together we're stronger, I guess, is the <laughs> the whole thing with that. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting uh, segue into your history of when you did uh, your PhD and how you got to JAXA from there. So I guess let's let's start from uh, 
from where you did your PhD? And can you just tell us a, a brief uh, history of, of what you've done? Because I know you've, you've also been involved in, let's say, some at least one other famous space organization. So uh, can you tell <laughs> yeah. us a little bit about that? Uh, I, I, yeah, starting with where you did your PhD and uh, the, the subject? Yeah, uh, the University of Leicester in England, about a couple of uh, hours train ride or so, I can't remember actually, one or two hours from London. But London's so big, it, it could be both of those actually. Um, yeah, yeah, Leicester is a great place, um, awesome food. Um, yeah, that's, but apart from the food, I also did a PhD there and that was, uh, about three and a half years long, uh, started it in about 2010. Um, yeah, I had a, a fantastic time. Uh, I was mostly looking at, uh, uh, it's funny. I actually started the PhD looking at Jupiter, but my first paper was on Saturn. Um, so th that actually became a recurring theme where I was, uh, tasked to do a particular job, but then some other data came up from a different planet that was, um, uh, let's say, uh, stronger data or something like that. It was it was uh, more interesting data came in whilst I was at, uh, whilst I was there about Saturn, and so I, I was tasked to look at the uh, to look at Saturn because um, we had some Keck data, and Keck is the is the biggest telescope in the world um, that we can use. Uh, for looking at uh, what we're looking at. And so, yeah, I, I was quickly moved to, to look at something at Saturn. And the first thing that we found was that um, there is a unusual signature away from the Aurora. Now, I guess my career generally talks about uh, what's going on away from the Aurora. Uh, usually, uh, let's say before 2010, most people would be talking about uh, only the aurora and that's just because the aurora are bright and they're easier to see um, but over time uh, technology has improved we've used bigger telescopes to look at the planets um, and so we've been able to look away from the aurora where the signal is kind of weaker and so that's kind of kind of my niche now uh, but what we found at saturn away from the aurora was that there were dark areas and bright areas depending on where you looked um, and it turned out that uh, some of these areas, uh, for example, at half, halfway between the equator and the North Pole of Saturn, uh, there was like a, a bright feature that went around the planet. Um, and this, this brightness was confusing at first, but it turns out that that actually uh, is there because of stuff coming in from the rings, uh, stuff that is uh, mostly water, we think. Uh, this is called ring rain. Uh, and it's uh, basically uh, charged particles coming from the rings. I say basically, but charged icy dust. It's electrically charged dust is what it is. It's, uh, it's flowing into the planet along uh, the magnetic field uh, and leaving an imprint. And so we saw that imprint. Uh, then we published that and that was... Uh, uh, that was uh, a big paper at the time in, in about 2013. Um, and I tell you, I was actually worried after after putting that out there because I thought, ah, what if I made a mistake? It was my first paper. Um, so I thought, you know, what if I made a mistake? This is, uh, I was very stressed about that. Um, but then a few years later, uh, the Cassini spacecraft actually uh, happened to fly 
in the general area where this uh, rain was coming in from the rings and actually detected it as well. Um, and so that was that was great. Uh, but this isn't uh, totally brand new because there was uh, there was papers and theories suggesting that this could happen uh, in the early 1980s. Um, but they kind of discovered it in a different layer of the atmosphere. Um, and it seems it seems to me at least that the the field, the astronomical community, was not totally convinced by the results of the 1980s. Um, probably because it was a, such a big claim to make and the signal was kind of faint. Um, and so really it took until, until basically nowadays uh, uh, for us to really definitively say that there was something going on. Uh, and so that's, that's I think, why our paper was uh, popular. We looked at an area, uh, a part of the atmosphere that's very, very thin, much thinner than what they looked at in the 1980s. Um, because the atmosphere we're looking at is very, very thin, uh, a lot more of it had changed based on this stuff coming in. So for us, the signal was much stronger. So that's another another thing. But it, we were still doubtful even at that time. But that's, you know, sometimes uh, you just have to, you publish what you see and put the best explanation you can in. Um, the evidence, there was evidence for some some interaction actually, um so the uh most of saturn away from the aurora is uh totally dominated by this uh stuff coming in from somewhere uh it does seem to link up with the rings i've heard uh, you've actually found a a lot of interesting facts about uh saturn's rings and uh i guess we could either go into those or or maybe they'll come up a little later once we uh uh, continue with your your uh, I guess history up until now your uh, your career. <laughs> um, yeah, so regarding uh, yeah the facts. So what we've generally been doing with these observations. So although we 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 discovered a signal coming from the planet, we've discovered that um, something is falling into it that leaves an imprint in the south. It actually leaves the reverse imprint. There's so much water coming in that it actually uh, kind of destroys the part of the atmosphere we're looking at and we can't see anything in that area. <laughs> That's how much is coming in in the south. But generally, we're trying to get uh, to, to estimate just how much is falling in. Uh, roughly about 1,000 kilograms of material per second is falling in from the rings to the planet, uh, at least in the mechanism that we're looking at. And if you do the maths, uh, that would mean that Saturn's rings last about 300 million years or so. Um, so yeah, the, the rings themselves are actually kind of... Uh, dying falling into the planet uh which is very sad but it's also it also means we're very lucky because we're here to see them uh you know if civilization had evolved a, a lot later a few hundred million years later um we wouldn't see uh saturn's rings as they are now uh the cassini spacecraft actually saw uh on the order of about 10 times more material flowing in to uh, Saturn at the equator, which is a different mechanism than what we found. Um, so, but it's still from the rings. And if you combine the two together, really the ring should only last less than a hundred million years. Um, but we're not sure, uh, or indeed the team, the Cassini team, I don't think we're sure uh, that this is a constant mechanism going on at the equator. It might just be like an event because uh, maybe some comet or 
or meteor came through and disturbed the rings and made some of them fall in. The reason that I say that is, is because um, every time the Cassini spacecraft uh, craft flew through that region between the rings and the planet, um, they measured a different amount of material coming in. So it's as if it depended on where you looked around the planet. Um, they, they kept getting a different uh, answer. Whereas what we see uh, is a different mechanism that should always be active. Um, so I would say somewhere definitely below 300 million years is going to be the lifetime of the rings. Um, at least uh, in their, when I say in their present form, I mean, there probably will always be some bits of ring left, uh, probably just a, a single ring, kind of like, uh, I would say, not too dissimilar from Jupiter's. Jupiter has a smallish ring right now, so maybe it had a bigger ring uh, hundreds of millions of years ago that's been eroded away by a similar mechanism. In fact, there's no reason this whole ring-rain mechanism can't work uh, on any planet with a ring system which also has a magnetic field uh, anywhere in space so so i think it is a universal mechanism um which then all points to ring systems themselves being kind of a uh temporary feature so they're kind of like a transient field of debris uh albeit a long-lived field of debris uh so maybe uh ring systems come and go uh i like to say this uh totally unproven fact that maybe Saturn's current ring system isn't even its first. Um, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't truly believe that. But it's it's fun to think about. Um, you know, even even Earth had a ring system at one point in its history. It had uh, when the Moon was forming, there would have been debris around the Earth, uh, quickly uh, cleared up, falling into the Earth, uh, and anything like. Uh, anything water-based would have evaporated uh, or sublimated, turned from a solid into a gas because of the sun, because we're so close to the sun over here. Um, whereas uh, at Saturn, it has an icy ring system that can be sustained because it's far away from the sun. Um, that It's mostly made of water, by the way, Saturn's rings. They're uh, over 95% made of water ice. Yeah, so, so ring systems, probably a transient thing. That's uh, that's actually quite poetic. So, <laughs> so anybody who you know might be in, uh, let's say, the literature field or the or the arts listening to this can uh, still take a lot of uh, inspiration, I'd say, from uh, from these uh, scientific uh, uh, facts and theories that are that are uh, that we're talking about today. When you say that the the Earth had some rings and and these uh, vanished quickly, how, how, what what is the definition of quickly here? Oh, good point. Are, are we uh, talking, uh, you know, uh, centuries or? <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, this is one of those things that depends on uh, how dense we're talking, because uh, I would say that most of the biggest pieces would have fallen in or kind of tidally being destroyed and crushed and pulverized even more by tidal forces and stuff like that. Probably on the order of, uh, I would say probably most of them would be cleared up in millions of years, but uh yeah it depends because the moon at the time was still fairly close to close to earth uh, i can't recall exactly how close but uh certainly uh several times closer than it is now and so the moon probably uh took on some of this material i mean it, it would have taken on this material because it, it it's what caused a lot of the mess um in the first place uh as it as this is the theory at least that yeah. uh, a, a really good theory actually uh, is, is that the moon was formed by 
some primordial body hitting, slamming into earth and uh, getting stuck in orbit around earth. Um, there would be a lot of material in an in orbit around earth because of this, uh, some of which would coalesce to form the moon and uh, including earthly material forming the moon too. Uh, so yeah, the, this this ring system that it was probably a lot more transient than than most out there um, on the order of I'm going to say millions of years, but there's probably a, a more precise model mm. out there which will you know you could say oh maybe 99% of it went away in a thousand years or yeah. you know we don't really understand uh, the influence of uh, or where exactly the moon was in the millions of years after did it did it go out very fast there's a different rate at which the moon moved away from the earth at different points so yeah so this is why i, I said very like very quickly like oh yeah quickly quickly, <laughs> quickly. On, on astronomical Qu times quickly a couple million years yeah so yeah. <laughs> also before i forget I, I should say that um uh mars the moon phobos is expected to break up in the future and also become a ring around mars um, which will then kind of decay into the planet um, and this is is uh how far in the future are we talking oh uh i want to say at least tens of millions of years possibly on the order of 100 million years or so um beyond the length of my career so i guess i could say anything oh, like that yeah we'll, we'll <laughs> see we'll see how that goes <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong in the future <laughs> So what did you uh, what did you do after you completed your uh, PhD? Uh, so I went over to work for a small. Uh, no, that was the wrong one. Uh, no, I went over to Boston University. I was going to say I moved over to a small space startup called NASA, but that was actually after Boston University. But um, yeah, I was at Boston uh, University in the USA for about uh, two and a half years, um, where I was doing some so called. Uh, postdoctoral research. So once you've got your doctorate, your PhD, then you do postdoc work uh, often, uh, which is always a funny term. <laughs> uh, but basically, you're just carrying on research. And so, yeah, I had a great time over there in Boston. It was uh, first time over living in the US, so uh, I learned a lot. Um, and then following Boston. Uh, I started working for uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, uh, which is very close to Washington, D.C., uh, in Maryland, or Maryland. Um, that, was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, so in both of those places, uh, firstly, I started to, I carried on with the looking at Saturn's rings falling into the planet. Um, but I also started looking at Jupiter uh, around about then as well. Um, so during the time I was in Boston, actually, we took the data for Jupiter that I mentioned earlier would be published in about uh, late August. Um, so yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was mostly yeah Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, we did discover something at Jupiter which was interesting. Uh, above the Great Red Spot, uh, we found out that uh, the upper atmosphere. Uh, it's a running theme in everything I talk about is that we're looking at the upper atmosphere, uh, which is about a uh, thousand kilometers above the cloud layers that you can see on these planets. Uh, it's pretty much where the aurora occur as well. But we looked at the upper atmosphere above the Great Red Spot. Now we're talking about uh, several hundred kilometers above the Great Red Spot. And we 
we decided to measure its temperature. And uh, at that time, it was uh, it was about a thousand degrees warmer than anywhere else, uh, almost uh, across the entire planet. It was even hotter than the aurora, actually. Um, and so uh, we thought that was evidence for uh, this wave heating, this uh, weird gravity or acoustic wave heating from below. Um, because you have the biggest storm in the solar system, uh, the Great Red Spot, it's about the size of Earth, or it's bigger than Earth, actually. Um, and so if you're going to look for these uh, signatures of waves breaking in the upper atmosphere from, from uh, gravity or acoustic waves, then you would definitely want to be looking at uh, above the biggest storm in the solar system. And so, yeah, we lo and behold, we found out that uh, the upper atmosphere was uh, several hundred degrees warmer than anywhere else. Um, in our future work, however, we have not seen that that is the case. Uh, we're still looking at why, but it could be that um, such heating is kind of kind of on or off, depending on when you're looking at it. Uh, maybe we got lucky when we saw it first, but we always hold out uh, the possibility that somehow we were wrong or something like that, which is, you know, one of the purposes of publishing your paper publicly is, uh, is to help uh, the field go, oh, whoa, what, what was going on here? Is this, can we see this again? So uh, we still need to repeat that uh, to, to do a redetection of that. There have been some hints that it was warm uh, about two or three years later, um, but not much warmer than the background, maybe 50 degrees or something like that. Um, so yeah, uh, that's a very interesting mystery. Uh, the reason that was important is because uh, we're always looking for heat sources on these planets. You know, they're, they're already measured to be way too hot compared to how much sunlight they receive. Uh, so that's one of the things that we, that we were trying to look at. Um, and that, that provided strong evidence that there was uh, heating from below, as well as uh, the, the more recent evidence that most of the heating is coming from the aurora as well. If you find uh, uh, these heat sources, or if you know uh, about them, do you have any any sort of, let's say, uh, practical use for this knowledge, or or is it uh, sort of more? <laughs> uh, I don't mean this in an offensive way, of course. Uh, I, is is this uh, sort of a, a collection of of let's say human knowledge about the the universe, or is there some specific, uh, let's say, team out there that uh, that's saying, okay, if we can find uh, certain types of heat in the universe we'll, we'll be able to uh, let's say explore or, or build or, or or do something uh um i <laughs> you, you cut me deep man oh, uh, <laughs> yeah so no it's it's a good point um uh luckily in this particular case um i am well armed um because uh just to give you an example uh, i was contacted after publishing this result that a storm uh, can actually heat the upper atmosphere. Uh, I was contacted by some Earth scientists, scientists that are based on Earth and studying the Earth, um, that they were looking at the upper atmosphere of uh, Earth. And they, they also expect to see some heating by waves. And about two years later, after this study was published, um, somebody, uh, a team, uh, I think it was Daniel Bowman, is the name of the person. Uh, they sent some balloons up into the upper atmosphere above uh, above the ocean with uh, some microphones on them. And they uh, were listening out for uh, acoustic waves um, or sound waves, waves in the air, basically, 
and they could calculate that um, even just the ocean waves on Earth sloshing around uh, actually can the set just the actual sound from that travels upwards and eventually has to break somewhere, and it can actually heat the upper atmosphere by a few a few degrees. So um, it's it's uh, it's one of those rare cases that we can directly link um, our outer planet work to Earth. But it's very important as a loss mechanism for energy uh, when you're looking at a planet as a whole. If if small ocean waves are doing it, there is evidence that um, uh, earthquakes, tsunamis, storms, uh, thunderstorms, lightning, uh, the the acoustic waves and the turbulence from those actually do uh, travel upwards and release their energy in the upper atmosphere as well. That's that's been measured at Earth. Um, so, so the, there is a good value, firstly, in uh, comparative planetology is what we would call that. Um, but on, on a more broader scale, so I still, I'll still stick to the, the science. I, I don't have to even touch the philosophical part yet. But the, the science part, uh, if you are looking at the upper atmosphere of Jupiter at the equator and you see it measures about... I don't know about 400 Celsius and it should be minus a hundred. If you've measured that since the seventies and it's, and you don't know why it's that hot. If you don't know why there it's hundreds of degrees warmer than it should be. Um, that challenges our understanding of physics uh, in general or atmospheric physics, you know, how, how could we say that, um, uh, that, that we we understand any atmosphere if that's happening <laughs> so so uh, basically um there are a lot of gaps in our understanding i don't think many people see the gaps because most of the time when we're looking at when you're looking up stuff uh, you're only seeing the things that we do know it's it's actually very difficult for anyone to say the things we don't know um i th i think even it took a couple of years into my phd before i was really understanding exactly how much we don't know um but even then if if you ask me a question that i don't know the answer to uh i might uh i might say oh you know i don't know or i might just as well say scientists don't know and actually i don't know which is the case um so there's a lot of uh a lot of scope for um you know there's a lot of misunderstandings out there i don't think that that uh, at least the general public or, or just other scientists in other fields that might not appreciate how much uh, is really unknown out there. Um, mm -hmm. So we don't really know the circulation of, of upper atmospheres on other planets very well. Um, but luckily, uh, one of the things working in our favor, uh, unlike the earth actually, well, Earth for earth, we can measure the upper atmosphere from the ground and we can do it with loads and loads of satellites. But, um, at the gas giants or the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, um, we can actually measure the upper atmospheres from Earth. Uh, so we're kind of lucky that we can do that. We're, we're looking at the, uh, the sunlit sides of these planets, and it's only because there's a certain, certain molecule that happens to exist there and not on Earth uh, that we can actually use these places as kind of like a... Um, a laboratory in space actually so that's, that brings me on to my third uh point <laughs> so so these places are 
they're obviously different from Earth. Um, we're going to learn new things about them, new things about how physics and chemistry work over there. Uh, way, things we can't simulate in a laboratory at all. Um, and uh, uh, even, even that's the case in the solar system. But it, if you look to more extremes like uh, black holes or uh, well, whole galaxies in general or extreme places of extremely huge stars out there that, that would uh, go beyond Earth if they were in our solar system starting at the sun. You know, huge stars out there, uh, huge, really ridiculously hot planets. Every, every superlative that you can think of uh, exists out there. All of these places are really good laboratories for studying new physics. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Uh, so on Earth, the highest impact velocity, impact speed that we can uh, do in a laboratory uh, situation is about 11 kilometers per second. And what I mean by that is uh, we can fire a, uh, usually a metal pellet. We can fire that at about 11 kilometers per second. That's about as fast as we could possibly go. Uh, we could fire that into something else and try and understand uh, the material physics in play or uh, what what exactly uh, happens when you when you fire something that fast? You know that that's the kind of the level we're working out on right now. But uh, in space, just even on the moon, you can have impact velocities that go up to about eighty kilometers per second. So if you study those, you know you can test is are the physics different when you get to uh, eighty kilometers a second versus uh, what we can do on Earth twelve and. And so there's many, many examples where uh, basically the universe is kind of like a, a big laboratory in space. That's a great answer, actually. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you were able to go over that because I think there, there probably are, you know, a lot of people out there who maybe wonder, you know, why are we, why are we looking so far away from Earth when, when there's, I, I guess there's still so much that we don't know about even, uh, even our own planet. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, one of your points is, I, I guess was basically that we will find out a lot about our, a lot more about our own planet as well by, and, and the physics in the entire universe that uh, as, as long as we continue to study these, the solar system and the galaxy and everything out there as well. I, I, I kind of want to go Back to when you mentioned uh, you were doing your postdoc at uh, Boston University, and and kind of I, I think we should maybe define this academic uh, hierarchy that there that exists because I think uh, once again a, a lot of people uh, don't understand this uh, this very well, and I, I guess I'll I'll bring up um, my understanding of it, and please correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, sub ranks aside, I would say, uh, generally the the academic hierarchy is uh, is uh, I guess a PhD student, and then you become a postdoc researcher. After that, I suppose it would be an assistant professor is uh, often the next rank, followed by associate professor, and then a full professor. And and there's probably you know junior and and tenure and and all sorts of things that you can uh, add on to those that make them more or less valuable. But uh, 
so I, I, we've been through your, your history up until your, your PhD and your postdoc. And, and were you still a postdoc when you were at NASA? Yeah, so uh, there is a, a slight distinction of a PhD. Yeah, generally, next, next thing would be a, a postdoc or a fellowship, which is kind of the same but different. So postdoc work, you generally are doing projects that somebody else uh, wants you to do largely, I would say. Uh, you're kind of working for them to, you know, it, it depends on the person though. They might be giving you a lot of independence. I certainly had a lot of independence in my first postdoc. It might as well have been a, a fellowship, actually. A fellowship uh, is basically, it's your own project where you you have submitted that you want to do a certain project to someone. So my job at NASA was actually a, my first fellowship. Um, but this is where it gets confusing, I suppose, because it was it's called the NASA postdoctoral program, but it was a fellowship. So they're kind of they're kind of one and the same. But if you if you hear someone saying that they're a fellow and they're, if they're not English, maybe a, a very good day fellow or I don't know. Um, Maybe uh, they're talking about that particular. I, I guess. I guess from PhD student to fellow to postdoc, those those particular three. Uh, I don't personally see them as as ranks. I feel like the ranks start um, when you get to uh, permanent positions like uh, lectureships, and uh, there's a position called reader. It depends on which country, but uh, <laughs> there's a position called reader in the UK, and and that kind of migrates to professor i suppose reader is the equivalent of a associate professor in other countries it gets very confusing but um generally yeah it's it's kind of phd postdoc slash fellow and then on to uh lecture lectureships or assistant professor and then onwards uh uh i think as you go on the time that you actually get to spend researching goes down uh, and the, the, you have more and more administration and uh, teaching duties. So in terms of, um, uh, well, your academic rank might be increasing, your amount of actual uh, research goes down, uh, but your service to the community goes up. So uh, you might have your own PhD students yourself and stuff like that. Uh, fellowship is probably the, the freest time that you could ever have because it's a project that you decided to do uh, you wrote in that project, you said, I wanted to do this task, this task, this task. These will be roughly my results. And, uh, you know, could you give me some years of funding to do that? Um, and so the postdoctoral fellowship program in, at NASA was about uh, two, about two, two and a half years for me. Um, and that gave me a chance to uh, look at uh, Jupiter uh, but the, the good part about being there was that um, Jupiter has a spacecraft around it called Juno, and that is actually operated, uh, at least partly, out of NASA Goddard. Um, in particular, one of their instruments, the uh, magnetic field sensing instrument, uh, was based in the very group that I was in. And so it was uh, very useful to collaborate with them whilst I was there, in the same way that earlier we talked about um, Cassini uh, at Saturn plus ground-based work. Uh, I was kind of ground-based alongside Juno. Uh, and actually, um, it took quite a long time for this work to process, but 
Um, now that now that it, the first paper is coming out, uh, there will probably be uh, about two or three more papers on this topic within the next year. Now that it's all been fully processed, and and we use uh, Juno spacecraft uh, magnetic field data uh, alongside our paper to tell us exactly where the aurora was, um, because it really uh, we're talking about heat escaping the aurora. Uh, it really does help to know where, exactly where the aurora uh, is exactly, and that's so that that was our little collaboration there. But uh, yeah, I digressed a little bit from uh, <laughs> the academic rank <laughs> thing. But uh, yeah, here at uh, here at JAXA, I have a similar fellowship, but uh, in this case, uh, it lasts about uh, up to five years. Um, so it's uh, I would say. Not, not to say hopefully, but hopefully it's the last uh, job that I have that is not a uh, fixed term. Uh, that one of the kind of issues in uh, in our field is uh, job security. Um, and while it is all nice and great to be traveling uh, the country or the world doing different uh, postdoctoral positions or fellowship positions, um, I am nearly 40, so uh, at some point I would like to have a permanent job um, and uh, move out of my basement. No, I'm kidding. I don't have a basement. Um, I wish I had a basement because <laughs> that implies something. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah, the, the main sort of aim, I guess, or the dream for a lot of people is to, uh, to carry on post-docking or fellowshipping uh, to get to the point where you have uh, a permanent job lined up. But that's where the tenure term comes in. Um, tenure would be this period of time where you're uh, proving yourself uh, to, 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 to become a, a permanent person. I think it takes, at least in the US, a few years of, of uh, concentrated effort, and then you have to pass a committee or something like that. Um, so in that sense, the whole, the whole kind of academic life after, after your, your undergraduate degree, even, uh, uh, you're tested again at PhD level. And then I guess it's some time before you're really tested again in terms of, uh, examination for yourself. But, um, I guess tenure is the next kind of the final exam in a sense, in the whole conveyor belt that is, uh, academia, um, and along the way, uh, people uh, might not like it uh, because of the, um, you know, the success rates in, in these things can be uh, on the order of 5% chance of getting, or for tenure, it could be as low as just one or 2%. Sometimes you have uh, two, 300 people applying for one job. Um, so so that's, that's why it's the dream that I mentioned before. <laughs> <laughs> So I just wanted to check here. After when, when you finished your two and a half years at NASA, yeah, um, you, you, right after that you came to JAXA. Uh, yep, uh, there was a about a six week gap or so uh, where I did some traveling. I see. Um, yeah, so I, uh, my wife and I, we called it uh, Japan the long way. Um, so we were actually flying uh, from place to place on the way over to Japan to to get. Um, some travel out of the way yeah so uh we we hit hit maybe about 10 15 countries or so on that on that trip actually um and so that was a i guess that was a nice that was a nice break and a good a good way to uh 
to switch country and explore because uh, travel is is one of my big hobbies um and travel is especially a very large hobby for my wife too we'll come back to to i guess uh your travel and your your uh international experiences and and uh, as well as you i want to ask about your experience in uh, japan too first i just want to ask about your your position at jaxa while we were on the topic of uh of academia and, and ranks because um I understand that your position at JAXA is, um, it, it's called the International Top Young Fellow. So I suppose it's a, it's a fellowship, but uh, at JAXA, we define the, this uh, International Top Young Fellow or ITYF as equivalent to an associate professor. And uh, we, as we brought up earlier, associate professor is, uh, is a fairly high rank in, uh, in academia. Um, is is this uh, rare for a a fellowship to be uh, considered such a high rank, or and, yeah. and how do you feel about uh, about your current position? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I would say it's exceptionally rare. Um, it's uh, I've not heard of it before, at least in our field. Uh, let's see the the NASA fellowship I had. Uh, there was no real. It didn't really mention any kind of rank, as far as I recall. Um, in fact. Uh, I wasn't fully aware of of the academic rank of the ITYF um, position until I got here, and, and I think somebody told me about several months in that, oh yeah, it's the equivalent of associate professor, and I thought, aha, um, <laughs> now I can tell everyone what to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think one of the biggest strengths of it is that it's a fellowship, so you are doing your own research. Uh, I can apply for uh, grants and stuff like that here to uh, have students and things like that. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a very uh, uh, I don't because it's my own job. I don't feel like saying it, but uh, it's kind of like a prestigious uh, <laughs> uh, fellowship position as defined by JAXA. Uh, but then again, I'll just say this because it's funny. But like it, most places say that their fellowships or whatever are prestigious. So, um, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not, it's not vanity here. It's like, uh, <laughs> just saying that almost all places say it, it's uh, it's good advertising, but, but yeah, in this case, uh, actually, uh, I think that JAXA do put their, uh, uh, money where their mouth is, so to speak, uh, because the, um, position, uh, is, is, uh, equivalent of associate professor. So, um, that's that's useful for us because um, in in then our future jobs uh, we can tell them that uh, that was our last uh, our last academic rank if you like and so so maybe it would uh, uh, count a little bit towards uh, points points that they need for a tenure in the next place that kind of thing. Let's hope we have uh, uh, some nice organizations listening who. Uh might be interested in giving your tenure here. <laughs> uh, so I guess let's uh, return to, to uh, you, you mentioned that you traveled for about uh, six weeks uh, in between uh, uh, leaving NASA and coming to JAXA. Yeah. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about, uh, I guess, your experience with, with uh, other cultures? Because you were, I guess you were born in England and, and raised there and, and were there most of your life until uh, after your PhD? Uh, yeah, so actually I was, 
uh, yeah, I was born in England and then I moved over to Wales for about uh, see, 10 years or so. And uh, then I moved back to England, but then I moved back over to Wales again to do my <laughs> undergraduate degree. So uh, I think 50 uh, 50 England and Wales, but uh, yeah, in general, um, that, that's probably the definition of just British. Uh, <laughs> uh, although I didn't live in Scotland or anything like that. But uh, yeah, um, I didn't go abroad until I was about 21 or so. Uh, I would not have considered, I travel uh, was kind of a scary thing to me. I would, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it's because I'm literally from the Shire. Um, Shropshire <laughs> is where I'm from originally. And, uh, and as well as that, I have lived uh, kind of in the country a lot of my life, I suppose, uh, at least growing up. So, um, you know, I think I first went to London at age, I don't know, 22, something like that. <laughs> so really, really late. And of course, London seemed very scary to me at the time, you know, all busy and everything like that. Um, I am basically a hobbit. Um, and I, I, I don't mean that, that reference lightly either, because uh, I think that the Shropshire, Worcestershire area was actually part of the inspiration of uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, uh, the actual Shire with the, the rolling hills and all of that stuff. Um, so there is, there's actually a link to that. Um, it's not just uh, purely joking around. Uh, but uh, yeah, after that, I moved over to, uh, I mean, I, I first traveled a bit of Europe just um, just a few times. Uh, Greece was awesome, all of those kind of places. Uh, and, uh, you know, kind of got myself out of my usual comfort zone and started exploring. You know, I, I've always had that... Uh, uh, drive to explore which is probably why uh, I like doing space science stuff in general actually because it's it's exploring but in a in I guess the I don't want to say the final frontier but uh, it is a it's a huge frontier uh, I know the earth's oceans need exploring too and all of that um, but yeah uh, then uh, going to the US uh, that was that was really tough at first actually moving over to the US because uh, I just come off the back of a a PhD, uh, which, you know, uh, generally it's still kind of like student levels of, of finances and stuff like that. So um, they did pay for my flight to go over there, but I did go over there with two suitcases nonetheless and have to set up an apartment. And, you know, uh, you pay for a few months of rent up front, uh, which is not easy uh, in a city like Boston um, uh, after a PhD. So it's, it's, uh, probably took me about the first year to, to have a very basic level of furniture over there in the U S <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know um, I, I really enjoyed my time in the U S um, I think I ended up going to about 20 or, th or 25 different States uh, over my time there. And uh, it's kind of like a second home uh, in that sense. I was there in total for about five years. Um, and then uh uh, yeah, I mean, I, I met my wife over there too, uh, in Boston actually. And then uh, uh, she loves travel, and so you know, uh, she really ignited the the travel uh, instincts that I had, I guess, in me as well. And uh, so we've we've traveled around a lot, um, uh, Southeast Asia and stuff like that. Um, we always say we haven't traveled enough, um, but uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much why we did this big. Uh, travel on the way from the US to Japan. Um, and of course, Japan itself is also a big travel destination for us. Um, uh, of course, 
we haven't had the the chance to explore Japan as much as we'd like because of the uh, pandemic. Um, but yeah, we're we're raring to go <laughs> to explore um, uh, up and down Japan. Uh, mostly, we've just been exploring uh, Kanagawa and Tokyo, and we did we did manage to go to o- Okinawa though just before the pandemic started. Um, it is a it's a very nice place. How have you been uh, adjusting to Japan? I mean, uh, it sounds like most of the countries that you've uh, lived in before, uh, I guess, had an English base uh, for their language. And uh, unless I'm missing something here, this is probably the first country you've been where the language is is very different, let's say. You could probably point out some differences between uh, English and American English, but uh, the language yeah. is quite different here, I think. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh... Yeah, definitely. Um, the US, um, mostly just the first few years was joking around about the different words with people. Um, I did have to change some of the words just because it was getting annoying. Like, uh, you know, I could I could be asking for water and that's a hugely different word in, in America. It's uh, it's like water, like water. I mean, it's, it's uh, and I realized, I acknowledged that the English way of saying it is kind of weird because why did we put an R after the A, you know, war and then to, I mean, water, it sounds, it could be water, make more sense. In fact, people in Northern England actually do say water. I'm not kidding. Um, and I respect them for, for keeping it literal phonetic and everything like that. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I had to change some words like that around just to, just for convenience because instead people will say, what did you say or whatever? I can't do an American accent, but they would, they would say, what did you say? And I'd have to repeat, repeat it again. So I did modify a few words over time and then went back. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in, in all my travels, uh, it's probably 35 countries or so. Uh, many of them, yeah, definitely not English as first language. Um, I would say that, uh, I, and I never go anywhere expecting uh, anyone to to have English at all, actually. I just, you know, I learned some phrases before I go over to each one. And, uh, but usually a very surprising amount of English is spoken uh, around the world. Um, Japan, uh, I would say Japan uh, has about the same, I mean, it probably has uh, about the same level as, as most kind of random places out there. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's been it, it's difficult with regards to sort of administration kind of things uh, because even if I was to learn Japanese at a really good level, it's not quite good enough for doing technical tasks like uh, uh, you know I don't want to rely on my own abilities for hospitals and stuff like that. I w- <laughs> Uh, so th- those kind of things have been a bit of a hiccup every so often, but uh, mm-hmm. it's to be expected. Um, but yeah, quite a lot of people speak English here, uh, usually unexpectedly, I would say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aside from, I guess the the technical aspects, it hasn't been uh, it hasn't been too much of a culture shock. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, people or myself too. Uh, you know, I refer to culture shock sometimes and, and think of culture shock as like a, it's just an immediate thing that happens like, ah, I mean, that's what shock kind of suggests. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the there's more slow moving culture shocks the, than that. Like, uh, you know, coming here like, oh, my God, the toilets are talking to me or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, 
that doesn't happen very often either <laughs> to, to anyone from not Japan <laughs> who might not know. Um, yeah, the uh, there isn't that, that many day to day culture shocks. I think because uh, Japan is is not not terribly dissimilar from the UK in terms of you know uh, it has its concrete buildings and its chains of uh, of similar shops uh, wherever you go and stuff like that. But um, I suppose one of the things I, I do miss about my own country or whatever is is uh, is being able to uh, you know day to day sort of joke around or you know just talk normally at, at high depth <laughs> it's very difficult to do uh, on a daily basis unless you know other people that happen to speak uh, perfect english uh, like yourself um it, it's pretty good um <laughs> uh yeah but in terms of culture shocks in japan i i don't really think i have had have had any culture shocks um exactly although i suppose uh uh, there is uh, less less foreigners than I thought in Tokyo, for example. I think it's just a few percent or something like that. Whereas uh, normally in a in a capital city, you might have uh, uh, many tens of percent <laughs> more more people from other places and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. You you met your wife in Boston. I also just want to bring up, I guess, your your family life here because although I know you know uh, well. 2020 presented uh, many challenges for for us all and and I know it also got in the way of uh, your work in some cases as well you were uh, uh, planning on looking at uh, I believe an exoplanet at the time with the telescope and you know that the pandemic sort of uh, put a halt on a lot of our plans but uh, but for for both you and I actually um, separately I should add we we had our first children in uh, in 2020 just uh, quite an amazing uh, life event, and and I think your uh, your daughter, who we may actually hear in the background uh, every now and then, is, yeah, you might uh, have heard some screams. <laughs> she she turned uh, what one year old recently, I think. Yeah, one year or uh, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And yeah. I, I guess I just want to sort of uh, ask you, you know, a, a couple questions on that. One would be, you know, you have a, I don't know how to put it, an oddly international family, you from England, your wife from Boston and uh, your daughter born in Japan. And then, uh, you know, the, how, how it is uh, balancing, you know, your, your work and uh, your family life and, and everything else to all the other uh, responsibilities that you have day to day. Can you uh, talk a, a little bit about that and, and anything that you've, I guess, sort of discovered uh, both as a parent and a scientist uh, when it comes to raising a child? Because I, I know we've, we've had uh, children, people have been having children and studying children for, <laughs> I guess, all of human history. And it seems like we still don't know a lot, even if we read the uh, academic literature, there will... Uh, There'll be some strange observations that I can't really agree with in those. And I'm just wondering uh, what your insight about this is, uh, how you've felt about it all, what uh, what experiences you've had, positive or negative. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, it's yeah, it's been tough uh, in a different country starting a family. Well, that that would have been tough, and we we accepted it uh, a long time before we moved here. Um, but then, uh, yeah, pandemic, 
made uh, hospital stuff very, very, uh, very bad because, uh, you know, you don't want to be in a hospital at that time. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, uh, I think, a learning, a big learning experience for us. Um, it's a shame that we haven't had any uh, family visit actually or anything like that. Um, but, uh, you know, everything is, is all clean and safe and everything here is all, you know, it's all good. Um, but, uh, and the, uh, the, the local government's pretty good at helping us out in all different ways. But, uh, yeah, I would say in terms of, uh, being a new parent. Yeah. Uh, uh, one, one big parallel that I could draw is the, uh, the life of a of an astronomer observing during the night, uh, all night, um, and we really do observe for sometimes uh, I don't know, like up to twelve hours in a night, uh, about as much as you possibly could. Um, and so, I would say that parenting is harder than that uh, in terms of getting up in the middle of the night, consistently getting up in the middle of the night. Uh, for over a year uh, <laughs> or, or, you know, however old your children are and stuff like that. Um, yeah. I'd say that's been a, uh, quite a challenge. Yeah. I would say astronoming, astro being an astronomer, it's not as, uh, not as difficult as that. No. So uh, mad respect to all the parents out there. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess anybody out there who, uh, who's heard that it's uh if you want to become an astronomer, it's uh, it's easier than being a parent. So, yeah. <laughs> and doing both is even more difficult. So, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, although you're an associate professor in in JAXA's ranks, you uh, I don't think you have any students of your own, do you? No, um, a big thing preventing that is the pandemic. I suppose mm -hmm. uh, I was kind of gearing up to to do that, but also the other thing is the uh, the language barrier. Um, it's uh it could be difficult to to find uh although had difficulty even searching because of pandemic stuff but mm -hmm. um yeah we're not really uh expected to have any phd students either as uh in this particular position um so yeah that in that sense it's very unusual i suppose it's like uh what might be called a, a research professorship or something like that where where most of your time is actually spent researching. So in that sense, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very convenient for, for just pure research actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I am trying to hire some, uh, students to help out, uh, in possibly the end of this year or, or maybe starting next year, you know, with, with the pandemic, everything is, uh, mm -hmm. always a little further away than you expect, but <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I, I want to mention, though, that uh, although you may not have any uh, students of your own to teach, I, I have noticed, and I think a lot of people have noticed, that you have um, quite the, the online presence as a science educator. And whether this was intentional or not, um, I understand you're, you're probably doing most of this uh, in, your, in your spare time. Of which I assume you have very little with uh, with a full time job and a child, but uh, you make uh, different animations to uh, from regular people to look at and be able to uh, digest uh, science bits uh, very quickly. So you could take a, a complex uh, topic. Um, 
uh, about you know the the rotation of uh, of specific planets or the speed of light, and you can turn these in you turn these into animations, and you share these on on I guess uh, YouTube and and your Twitter account, and you you currently have somewhere I think it's it's close to hundred thirty thousand followers on Twitter, which is uh, which is quite a significant number of followers. And maybe after uh, this podcast takes off, you may have 130 million. That's <laughs> hope. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, it just sounds like you, you're doing a, a lot of uh, educational work as well. Can, can you just tell us sort of how you, you got into to doing all this, uh, this education, the science education, and, and what you hope people will, will get out of it? Yeah, so... Um... It's funny you should mention it. Yeah, it does I guess it has uh, filled the the vacuum that not teaching has left? Um, and in a sense, I know uh, I would say personally know uh, people that are teaching astronomy that are actually using the animations to help teach. So um, so that that's it's a nice feeling to know that the the videos are out there actually used as teaching tools as well. Um, uh, so at all levels too, it could be. Um, uh, uh, like children, even for some of them, uh, and to to uh, uh, people in high school and people in university, uh, they use them in museums and planetariums and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that I would say, uh, whatever teaching responsibility that I would otherwise have has been probably absorbed by that. Although it is in my free time mostly, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, which I have a lot less of <laughs> these days. Um, so mo- most of my productivity was probably uh, uh, 2019 and early 2020. Dur- during the uh, the, fir- the first big animation was in about the end of uh, 2018, where we had a press release. Uh, so it was a it was kind of a follow up paper about the rings of Saturn, where we actually in that paper figured out um, what the the ring lifetime should be based on the material coming in. Um, and in that paper, uh, we had a, a cool video voice uh, uh, animation with a voiceover produced by NASA Goddard showing the mechanism of how water is getting from the rings and going into the planet. Uh, but what we didn't have was imagery showing what the rings uh, would actually look like in the future. Um, this was a, a Friday in December uh, 2018. Uh, our press release was coming out on the following Monday, and it was at that point I was thinking, "Oh, I need to have a an image showing this. This what will definitely be the frequently asked question is, oh, well, what will the rings of Saturn look like in a few hundred million years' time?" Um, so I produced a uh, an image showing a faded out looking Saturn's rings, uh, but I didn't feel like that was enough. Uh, so I spent Saturday looking up uh, different animating tools, uh, uh, tried about four or so before arriving at uh, Adobe After Effects. This is not an advertisement for them. <laughs> there are other products available. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that seemed to work for me. Um, so I made a, a video of Saturn's rings kind of disappearing while we're flying over them and stuff like that. Um, and I sent that to NASA to include as the part of the press release materials. And uh, uh, on Monday, on the uh, New York Times article about our work, uh, they actually used that animation that I produced the following day, uh, the previous day, sorry. 
Um, and it was on the, as soon as you go to that page, it's still up actually. Um, if, if you were to type in something like Saturn's rings and New York times or something like that, it should be there. Um, the, you'd see the video on the top just automatically play. And I thought, wow, that's, uh, you know, it's my first animation ever. And it took like a, I don't know, I guess maybe two full days of work overall to get to the point. But if I was to do it again, it might take an hour. Um, it's the, the learning curve. I have to thank um, all of the YouTube videos out there and uh, stack exchange things, the uh, forums and everything else that um, uh, that just people ask the questions and answer them. And it, it was very useful actually. And it's always been useful. Um, uh, I don't feel like those people get enough credit, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's kind of, I'd say self-taught, but thanks to all of the resources that they provide all over the place. Um, and so I guess it was a couple of weeks later, I made a video, which was not related to any press release. Uh, it was a video just after Christmas, 2018. Um, I thought, okay, I want to see, uh, the planets rotating, uh, at their correct angles. Um, with the correct relative rotation rates. So Jupiter rotates in just under 10 hours and Earth is 24 hours, just under 24 hours, actually. Um, you have to look at my animations to figure out why. Um, exactly, it's under 24 hours. But um, uh, can, can I just stop you there so we can, we can uh, I'm sure people are going to be pausing this podcast and looking for these animations. So what is, what's the best way to, to find these, uh, your animations? Yeah, they it's, visit your your YouTube uh, channel. Yeah, or? I would say, uh, yeah, my YouTube channel. The username is uh, jfizz85, which is a stupid name. J jfizz <laughs> is is j p p h y s. Yeah, always. Yeah, <laughs> eighty five. Yeah. That's right. No, no uh, spaces or anything. Uh, no. Uh, okay. But. Uh, Twitter uh, at physicsj is is there, which also has the YouTube link in it. That might be easier to to find, but you could also, um, yeah, that, those are the best ways to find out. Actually, um, yeah, I have everything stored on YouTube. Kind of, YouTube is the best place to look to find them. But uh, yeah, Twitter would be quite difficult to. You'd have to use the search terms in Twitter to really find them exactly. But yeah. but the best ones are on YouTube with high resolution and stuff. Uh, they have brief descriptions underneath, but largely they are self-explanatory. Um, so J, jfizz85 on uh, YouTube or yeah. at physicsj on uh, Twitter. And you can go through the the YouTube link in, in your profile or in your, your pin tweet or... Uh, yeah, it's actually in the, uh, the bio, I think, or, okay. on, uh, or, or something on, on Twitter. I think there's a, there's a space for a, a URL to be there. So and, I put it in there. Make sure that you, uh, you know, you like, subscribe, follow, and, <laughs> and do all of those things while you're looking. It's, uh, it's, it's quite educational. I, I think your, your Twitter account is actually maybe, uh, uh, let's see, eighty-five to ninety percent educational and science information, from my understanding. Maybe, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more. I'm not uh, sure, but it's about, mostly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess it's about uh, something like eighty-five percent uh, science posts and about ten um, percent dad jokes. But if it depends, <laughs> those dad jokes are kind of uh, they can overlap with science. There could be a hidden message that acts, you know, that it actually teaches something at some point. Um, yeah. I've had some pretty good jokes, I would say, on there. And that's, you know, 
really lame jokes that make your eyes roll. Can can, can you give us an, an example of uh, <laughs> one of your better jokes? Oh, yeah. So um, uh, there was one about uh, Celsius is great, but Kelvin is an absolute unit. Oh, that's... But, That's a very nice joke. Since, uh... Yeah, it's it's more of a contemporary joke and it probably depends on where you're from to really get it because uh, the term absolute unit, as only, I've only recently discovered it a few years ago. So I'm imagining, if, if, depending where the listeners are, they might not have uh, heard. Absolute unit is a term you could just uh, Google, I suppose. And <laughs> But yeah, if I explain the joke, it's not funny anymore. Uh, and I, I guess this is this is one of those situations where it's uh, uh, increasingly difficult to to find someone in Japan who will understand your jokes. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So if I said that, I, I would just look uh, kind of weirder than I already am. So uh, sorry, <laughs> I cut you off before when you were talking about the the uh, the animation with the the rotation of the planets on the correct tilt. And... Oh yeah. So. Um, Yeah, generally, uh, kind of my go-to thing to do even now is to, to double check if something exists or not. But in that particular instance, uh, I kind of expected it to exist. I expected there to be just a video out there which would show all the planets rotating at the correct relative rates. So Jupiter should be rotating about two and a half times faster than Earth. Um, it should be tilted about three degrees. Earth should be tilted about 23 degrees or so. And... Um, It didn't exist, so then I had to make it. I wanted to make it. <laughs> I needed to make it. Um, I wanted to see what it would look like, actually. Um, and I genuinely did not think uh, it would take off. But uh, once I made it, I even had a big mistake in it. I'd put the wrong uh, <laughs> the wrong uh, rotation for Venus. I corrected it in another version. But altogether, in the first week, that those uh, the video and the corrected one probably got about uh five million views or something like that actually mostly within the first three days or two days even and i thought okay um <laughs> in the past i have spent maybe a full day preparing to give a talk to about uh 20 people public talk um a full day um to to get the slides for that one small thing uh you know And reach 20 people and while that's always going to be a, a stronger interaction more personal um i thought okay in terms of in terms of hours per effort reaching people it was very very efficient to have reached that many people in in such a small amount of uh actual time to do and uh that that's that's what i compared it to because i guess that's more of a uh a scientific way of thinking about it at the time i thought wow but, but it was mostly the um uh responses that i received that made me carry on and you know they wanted to see uh people wanted to see more of that kind of thing uh and i did too and i, I realized there's actually kind of a, a vacuum in space animations <laughs> um there's another joke for you uh <laughs> don't forget to follow and all that <laughs> but yeah there is a big uh, I, i would I wouldn't like to or maybe a niche or and, and everyone has seen lots of animations out there um And kind of uh, anyone that that is a, has a hobby in astronomy and has seen animations out there, when they see them posted by random accounts on on Twitter or whatever, um, they can they can be wrong very often. They can be incorrect. Um, 
So some, some animations I see that are done incorrectly, I would want to double check by making it myself and see. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they'd be wrong, but um, it's kind of why I put um, my name and link all over the animation when it's produced so that people can track it down to a source and they could ask me questions about it. Uh, you know, or where did you get the data for this or, you know, but generally the data is just uh, really easy to Google, you know, oh, someone might doubt that Jupiter is as big as, as, as I portrayed it or something like that. And they could Google it and they would see, oh, it's correct. Or mm. they could say it's not correct. And then they message me uh, and it's all public. So people can see how it goes. And, uh, and uh, sometimes that they've been right and I've pulled the animation and redid it. Um, so that's a good thing about posting on social media, actually, this, this stuff is that um, it can be iterated with people who uh, can provide the peer review, if you like, uh, for the thing. Um, generally, when I post a earth rotating uh, thing, uh, I get a lot of questions uh, that follow on uh, from that. And then I realize there's a big gap in people's understanding in some area so then another animation is needed in my opinion uh, and at this point i'm over around about 70 odd animations now uh, and i think it's mostly covered most of the big topics uh out there in so terms with, at least in the solar system yeah with about 70 videos currently do, do you know offhand roughly how many collective views that is uh, 200. No, uh, <laughs> two, I think actually almost 200 million. Uh, 200 million views. And, and this is over the course of, of uh, about two three or three years. years. Yeah. And uh, I say I say that that's a, a realistic estimate, I think. Uh, on my channel itself, it's not that many. It's like 20 million or so. If you look at Reddit, uh, there is you have to do some uh, make some assumptions about how many times those are viewed. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, then there's Twitter, all of the combined views of those. And then there's all sorts of other places like uh, where GIFs are stored, uh, a place called Giphy Cat. And then there's uh, other, uh, other social media platforms uh, like in China and other places like that. So I, ha I have uh, trawled around trying to collect as many as I could find. And I generally get to around, oh, and Facebook and Instagram too, huge places, uh, generally find... Uh, around at least last time i checked many months ago it was over 150 million or so um and then i guess you mentioned that uh, some of these animations are being used in in schools and museums and and all over the place as well so yeah the the animations are now so old that they're in museums <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, so on, on the I, I guess on the note of uh of science education there there's probably a, a lot of people out there listening who, who, you know, maybe they're interested in, in making a career out of uh, astronomy and uh, astrophysics or get involved as more of a, a citizen science, scientist or, or, you know, take it up as a hobby or maybe do it as, as a side thing for, for them. There's, there's probably a lot of different people with a, a lot of different interests in the subject. I'm just wondering if you if you had any uh, recommendations for people aside from your animations, of course, where they could go to, you know, learn more about uh, astronomy and, or, or, uh, or your field in, in particular, you know, looking at uh, let's say 
the atmospheres and upper atmospheres of planets or if you have any recommendations, let's say uh, books or, or perhaps uh, courses that you would recommend uh, for anybody who's looking to learn more about this. Yeah, there are uh, obviously loads of uh, resources online and um, it, it's definitely a case of figuring out which, which is the good one or what, what level of depth you want to get into for each thing. Um, there is a lot, uh, I will say this, there's a lot of good um, science educators out there on uh, on YouTube. Um, I know YouTube, YouTube and Wikipedia uh, get a bad reputation, I think, a lot of the time. Uh, or, but that, I think that reputation is improving. Uh, you, you do have to know and check your check the sources, check what uh, people are basing their their words on, some way or another. And um, I think that's that's the general rule in science, anyway. Uh, just keep uh, searching, searching for the truth. But uh, for example, if you're looking up some fact on Wikipedia. Um, Usually, if you were to quote that in maybe high school or something like that, you would get, uh, you know, your teacher might not like that. They might not like you quoting uh, Wikipedia or something like that. Um, but usually there's a little number uh, above a fact on Wikipedia and you click that and you get to the source. Uh, and they have a good mechanism on Wikipedia. If there's a, If there's no source, sometimes it says source is needed you need to say where it's from but you've got to check that source too because the source could just be a news a news article from 1999 or something like that which doesn't link to anything um so you've always got to fact check for yourself that's uh you want to basically arrive at a science paper or or something that a, a university has put out uh something like that or or some big agency like nasa um generally i would say wikipedia is very good at that um, and there's good science educators out there, like uh, Veritasium, for example. Um, how, how do you spell that? It's V-E-R-I-T-A-S-I-U-M. Part of me was wondering, because he's American, if if he'd put like Veritasium, because we say uh, in in England, we would say, Verit we, we would say uh, aluminum, uh, sorry, aluminium. <laughs> <It's, laughs> Americans and other people would say uh, aluminum. Yeah. And so... I don't know. I was just wondering if you'd actually put that differently. <laughs> That's my excuse. But uh, yeah, Derek Muller is his name anyway. Um, uh, he produces uh, really uh, thought-provoking videos. But uh, there's a lot of uh, generally the uh, the bigger science sharing places out there uh, uh, in terms of courses would be places like uh, Khan Academy. That's really good for so many subjects, actually. Uh, I, I regularly visited that place, uh, while I was doing my degree actually to look at, uh, to get some mathematical intuition. Um, but now I see that, uh, the, those pages have got, uh, astronomy and cosmology and all sorts of things on. Yeah. There are, there are lots of, uh, online courses out there. Um, it depends what level you want to get into it in terms of astronomy as a hobby. Uh, people are probably, uh, more interested in, actually doing some hands-on stuff um, you can uh if if you're doing it sort of solo there's a lot of resources out there for that uh it really just is a google search away for a lot of the help helpful articles i think um uh, if you did a search for backyard astronomer or astronomy there's there's a really helpful uh there's a website 
run by i mean there's so many actually <laughs> for that but uh you know they say that you can first firstly starting astronomy you use your eyes anyway so you can look at things with your eyes and enjoy it that way mm-hmm. um which is uh, zero money um uh if you uh presumably you have the internet if you're listening to this um so you can uh you can download uh an app called stellarium or stellarium uh which is free and you can uh look at your night sky and it will label all of your uh it will label everything that you can see that's for uh android or apple or desktop or how do you spell stellarium do you it's a s t e l l a r i u m thank you yeah so uh yeah that's a really really good a really good app actually uh, i regularly use it to sort of further build my own intuition on astronomy uh, even even yesterday i was looking at it uh you can do some fun things like you can uh fast forward in time uh, i was doing it yesterday at about a thousand years every second and uh, i was wondering just to fill in my intuition what the milky way galaxy would look like in the sky over thousands of years uh seeing it go side to side uh the reason it was going side to side is because the earth is um spinning like a top uh in a, in uh yeah so yeah just uh just have fun and experiment really with that uh next step would be binoculars and then the next step would be a small telescope which you can use to uh, a non-motorized one just to look at the moon or something um you can also join local astronomy clubs um there's usually one in your area that's what I, that's what i'll say uh and, and they tend to have kind of bigger telescopes and you can go and use them without spending any of your own money unless unless they have a a fee or something like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they might actually generally do. I can't remember. Uh, it depends where you are. But uh, yeah, they can teach you about the night sky as well. Um, and I wish you clear skies on that front. <laughs> All right. Is Do you have any other uh, uh, recommendations? Um or, or let's say anything that you, um, maybe a, a book of your own or, or a, a new paper of your own or, or something um, from one of your uh, colleagues. Yeah, uh, there was, there's a book, uh, most recent book I've read is, uh, to completion, is, uh, is a book on supervolcanoes by uh, Robin George Andrews. It uh, should be out in, I would say, maybe August, September or something like that. It's, definitely by the by the fall of 2021 um uh so yeah i read that book it's it basically talks about volcanoes on earth uh and then moves over to other worlds as well including uh, venus mars and the moon and even moons of other planets like uh, io around jupiter and uh, enceladus around saturn uh talks about uh, uh all th- everything you could possibly want to know about volcanoes is in that one book. And I was very impressed by it. And I learned a lot. Um, I am a planetary scientist by trade, but most of my stuff is, is upper atmosphere stuff. And uh, it does, uh, it does, it does leave me uh, a little bit undernourished in terms of uh, knowing things about the geology of the world, um, especially when you're looking at uh, giant planets made with their upper upper parts of the planet made of gas uh, <laughs> and no solid surface, so uh, I definitely brushed up on my geological knowledge doing that. Um, 
yeah, it was very fascinating to learn uh, a lot of stuff in there. So I recommend that everybody buy it. And, um, sorry, what was the title of this book? Uh, it was uh, Super Volcanoes, What They Reveal About Earth and the Worlds Beyond. Robin George Andrews. Uh, he's um, uh, Rob, Robin uh, and I have uh, known each other for a few years now. Um, he's actually a, a PhD uh, geologist who uh, became a science writer, and he writes lots of articles on, um, well, anything to do with rocks uh, anywhere, or volcanoes specifically, though. Um, and so uh, we've worked together. I've answered his questions about certain science topics uh, uh, in the media. Um, and so, yeah, he's he's become a good friend and uh, that I've never met, like most <laughs> people on the internet. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's going to be a really good book. Uh, I'll double check when it's coming. It, it's available for pre-order, I think. Oh, it says here it'll be available November second, twenty twenty-one. All right, so uh, November second, twenty twenty-one. Everybody, make sure that you uh, pick up that book and give it a read. Yep. So I guess uh, we've been going for quite a while now. I should. Uh, I'll just ask you another. Uh, a few closing questions here, and then I'll let you get back to, uh, <laughs> I guess maybe you'll have to put your daughter to bed soon. I'll have to put my uh, son to bed soon too. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, all right, I'm just going to, to ask a question kind of out there, but, but what is a, a wild uh, long-term goal of yours? And oh, assuming that you had, um, let's say near unlimited budget uh, to spend on this particular goal, uh, is there something that you'd like to accomplish? Let's say, let's say all the billionaires of the world said, okay, we're going to fund whatever you want to do. What is this one thing? Uh, I would probably build some, I mean, if it was specifically for my science projects or something, uh, I would uh, probably build a very, 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 very large telescope um, or multiple of them and, and send them into space and maybe have uh a probe around every planet. I think that's essential, really. Uh, probably some, you know, if if we really are talking infinite or all of Earth's money all spent uh, on space science <laughs> instead of uh, <laughs> other other worthy causes. <laughs> <laughs> for for uh, the scope of this question, we'll, we'll assume this is the case. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Let's say the, the whole population of Earth is uh, really interested in... Um, specifically this it would be yeah i think you know we have james webb space telescope going up soon uh hopefully the end of this year which will be it's the successor of hubble not the replacement uh it's going to look at infrared and uh and i think a little bit of visible too um but uh yeah it'll it'll be kind of a game changer out there it'll be looking at uh, the other planets and the uh It'll look further away than Hubble could, um, uh, but it, it's still, it'll only be up for several years and it took maybe 20, 30 years of building. So um, that's just the one new telescope since Hubble that is very large, um, that is gonna be up there. And I think uh, I, would, I wouldn't mind maybe uh, sending a telescope uh, to the moon or something like that and have it, have it uh, regularly look. <laughs> uh, <laughs> looking up um yeah because uh 
at least on the moon you have uh, half the month would be just dark and the other half would be light because the moon does rotate relative to the sun uh there is no there is no fixed uh fixed uh dark side as people uh sometimes say <laughs> uh, and you can again check the animations out to see what i'm talking about there but uh yeah a, a probe around every planet would be really good as i mentioned earlier uh it's uh kind of astonishing that there isn't really uh like right now uranus and neptune really really need a mission actually uh they have never been orbited by a spacecraft uh we only have kind of a snapshot of them on the way past and uh what we're finding with uh exoplanets that we're discovering is that of the many, many thousands of new exoplanets discovered, uh, many of them, or a, a, the largest part of them, are in between the mass size of Earth and uh, Neptune. So it's funny, the, the most common type of planet orbiting other stars is actually uh, a planet we don't have in our own solar system. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, there's something halfway, half the size of Neptune or so, something like that, or just a little bit smaller. Um, so it's funny uh, that we don't have that. So I think it's very important. We have a really good uh, understanding of Earth. Uh, we don't really have a very good understanding of the next one up, which would be Uranus and Neptune. So uh, mm. there's actually hundreds of planetary scientists interested in doing a mission to uh, Uranus and or Neptune in the future. And right now there is nothing being built or, or even there's, there's things being proposed, but, uh, you know, we're looking at, uh, a couple of decades away before it gets there, I think. Yeah. yeah. Unless, uh, unless we put all that money into it. And then <laughs> it's a difficult proposal. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. Um, I think, I think it can be done for maybe half to $1 billion or so, something like that, which seems like, uh, a lot of money it is a lot of money uh, <laughs> it is it's, a lot of money but but uh the uh i think a lot of people would like to know that most of the money is spent uh kind of on the labor on the people themselves mm -hmm. who are then spending it in the economy immediately um and it's also spread over many years usually like 20 years or something like that so you know per year it's it's not it's not as uh, terrible as you think <laughs> yeah so okay if, if anybody's out there listening has an extra one billion dollars uh yeah. you know we need to get some probes around uh uranus and it's uh, neptune genuinely though like if uh, if i was elon musk right now um i would give me a billion dollars i mean i would give the science community uh, <laughs> i mean just uh at least this spacecraft uh to send it uh you know we can probably put the probe on and they can give us the rocket and we can uh, get over to Uranus or Neptune. Um, Cause a, a large part of it is the, I said the kind of the labor cost, the rocket cost mm -hmm. and everything like that. But um, I think if I was a billionaire, I would be thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll just ask you one last thing. And, and this is, this is uh, a question, I guess, for the, the audience in particular, but if, if you had one message in regards to science, uh, you know, this can be a, any simple fact or, or theory or, or piece of information related to your field, anything that you would like to the, the listeners to either know or, or think about, what would that be? That's a good question, because 
I want to uh, give 20 answers to that. But um, if there was a, a single uh, fact, I mean, if, if I go specific, I could say, you know, the uh, the rings of Saturn are made of uh, nearly 100% water. And I, I don't think things like that are very much appreciated by... Uh, by people a lot of the time i would like to know let, let people know that quite a lot of stuff out there is actually made of frozen water in the solar system actually and beyond but um there's a lot of water out there uh some moons are almost you know they're kind of completely made of water <laughs> so but it's frozen mm -hmm. uh but it's it is uh it's something to keep in mind i think when you're talking about space physics or space science planetary science is that you know, some of the news articles that grab your attention are talking about water on an, in a particular place. Um, rightly so, but it, water really is everywhere, actually. Um, it's just not in liquid form. That's the biggest thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'd like to remind people of that, I guess. Uh, Saturn's rings are a, a good example of that because they're, they're almost completely water. In fact, if they were pure water, the rings would actually look white. But just because of a small amount of stuff which uh we don't really know exactly what it is but it, let's just call it some dust uh it's kind of led to uh an impurity i guess in the water content uh that has led to the kind of characteristic uh sandy looking colors of the rings so um yeah water is everywhere uh out there in space that's that's kind of my number one science fact at least without an animation <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's definitely interesting something i think a lot of people uh either don't realize or don't appreciate uh water is water is actually everywhere out there in space and uh, you can find it uh, all over the solar system there is one uh, other big thing and it's usually the distances that i like to convey they're just impossibly vast i've never grasped them i've never grasped the distances fully um, making the animations went a little bit towards helping that, but uh, showing light speed moving along really slowly as it does on large distances uh, over large distances has been, uh, has gone a little bit towards that way, maybe a little bit helpful, but, you know, I recently started this Twitter thread where uh, we're leaving the sun at the speed of light. And every time we pass some objects orbit, uh, of interest like uh, Earth and then you know, Jupiter, Pluto, not in that order, there are things in between. But, you know, we're, we're going out and we, we're, we've gone past the furthest objects. Um, you know, I will update the thread when we get to the nearest star in four years and uh, about three months. Um, and so when I finally post that in 2025, or yeah, the end of 2025, um, that's, I hope that hammers home some point that even at light speed, the nearest star is uh, just mind-bogglingly far away. Um, and so the only words I can use to describe that are kind of like uh, terror or horror. It's just so far. Everything's so far away. Um, that's my uh, exciting slash kind of depressing point uh, and that, that's that's something that's been a driver for a lot of my earlier animations because I really wanted to to let people know that not everything is just really close to us. It might feel that way. Most of the diagrams you see have necessarily had to put things next to each other in order to just portray them. 
-hmm. but uh yeah everything is is super far away when you look at the real scales um and so that that's that's the good take home i think yeah all right on that note you know water is everywhere and everything is far away <laughs> yeah I, i guess we will uh We'll, we'll end this uh, episode. It was, it was great having you here. We, I, I think, uh, you know, I learned a lot. I think everybody else, uh, everybody listening is, was able to, is probably able to take a lot of uh, excellent information from everything you've said here today. And if you haven't seen uh, James's videos, make sure you go and check them out. Hopefully we'll have you on again in a future episode. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for your lovely questions and your time.